0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 939. To begin this week's show, David Lorillow welcomes Jim Rosenhouse, broadcaster for the soon-to-be Cleveland Guardians. David and Jim discuss the team's name change, getting to broadcast from the road again, and what it is like to share a radio booth with Tom Hamilton. Jim also shares stories from some of the great teams he worked for and players he covered in the minors, as well as his memories from Cleveland's World Series appearance in 2016. Finally, David also asked Jim how he felt about another potential team name option.
1: I kind of like the spiders, but I think they were they were really struggling with copyright on spiders because there's a couple of other entities that had that already. And the other thing is, I guess they did some surveys, and there are enough people who really struggle with spiders. I mean, it's it's a serious problem um, for a lot of folks, and 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 maybe for some kids to put together the type of logo that would be kid-friendly, that uh, that made it a, a difficult hurdle to pass.
0: As a small producer's note, you may hear a small siren sound in the background late in Jim's segment that I was unable to remove in editing, so don't be alarmed. It is just your podcast. In the second half, lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen is joined by Brendan Golowski to discuss the Dominican Winter League draft, which just occurred on Wednesday. Eric and Brendan go into detail on just what lead home is and how the draft works, as well as how good the streaming access has gotten to watch the league every year. The duo go over the many notable names in the draft, including a number of guys you may remember, as well as a load of prospect talent.
2: But like Ezekiel Duran, I have... Towards the back of the hundred, and he went in the third round of this draft. And like Alberto Rodriguez, who I don't really like very much at all, went in the fourth round, and Yuri Perez of the Marlins, who's like the six seven kid who he's about the same age and looks just as good as about every prep arm that went in the first round of this year's draft, except for maybe Jackson Job. Like he's at least as good as literally every other high school pitcher his age, except for Jackson Job. Like that guy went in the fifth round of this draft. So I do think it, it shines a, a little bit of a light on what these staffs of people working for these teams think about some of the players
0: but before we get to these interviews i must issue my weekly reminder to check out the fangraphs.com shop you can find our merch as well as our ad-free memberships the best way to browse the website as well as help us keep doing everything we do we truly appreciate your support thank you enjoy the show
3: Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Jim Rosenhaus, radio voice of the soon to be known as Cleveland Guardians. We will touch on that name change in a bit. But first, Jim, welcome to Fangraphs Audio.
1: David, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
3: I have been planning, hoping to have you on for a while. As it was, I just saw you a few days ago. And that was in the visiting radio booth at Fenway Park. And I am quite sure that you are pleased to be doing road games live and in person and not from uh, a studio.
1: Oh, goodness, yes. Uh, What a difference. It was almost like a second opening day, David. We, We started the year doing the broadcast remotely again. Uh, from the road just like we did a year ago but as it gained a little bit of steam I think maybe the White Sox or the Tigers were the first to get back out on the road with their radio crews and once they did that seemed to really help us And, and our we had a lot of support from our front office, both on the baseball side and the business side, to get back out there. And we finally did in June with a trip to Baltimore and St. Louis. And, and it really was like a, a second opening day for, for Tom Hamilton and I. And it's been fun to be out there ever since. And I think it really was driven home last weekend. I mean, anytime you can go to Fenway Park in person, that's a great thing. It really was a lot of fun last weekend. So, yes, it's uh, it's been a good thing to be back out on the road.
3: Yeah, and with uh, Tom in mind, the windows were open in both the press box and radio booths at, at Fenway. And I actually heard Tom's call of Fran Mule Reyes' home run yeah, you know, from a, a handful of windows down. Your broadcast partner has uh, quite the set of pipes as well as a good home run call.
1: He does. Uh, that's not the first place that's happened. And I understand it was it was coming out over the TBS broadcast. Brian Anderson and Ron Darling were, were right next door to us. But that's what makes him one of the best. And I mean, fans here love him because of that. And you always know when it's a, a Cleveland Indian who hits a big home run, that's for sure. And so yeah, I'm sure you probably did hear him on occasion down the hall a little bit.
3: Yeah, it is a question that you could probably talk quite a while. But in brief, just what is it like to share a radio booth with Tom Hamilton?
1: Well, it's a lot of fun, and look, obviously, it was this is my first job, and it's been a, a while now, but it's been my my opportunity in the major leagues, and and the chance to work with him has been an absolute pleasure. I mean, he's been so helpful, and you know, you you bring up being able to hear him on on home run calls, and obviously that's. That's kind of neat and fun and and all that, and the fans love it. But I I think from my perspective, just his attention to detail and preparation on a daily basis, no matter whether the team is playing well or or poorly or having a good season or maybe out of the the playoff hunt, he's always well-prepared, and I think that's a a great lesson for anyone who comes in contact with him in this business, And, and that would be myself as as his broadcast partner, you know, it doesn't matter how your team's doing. There's always stories. And and he's really good at fleshing those out and, and always being prepared uh, no matter the situation.
3: You cited this as your first big league job, which you had, I believe, for a decade now. Before that, you called games for the Buffalo Bisons for maybe even a little longer than that, 11 or 12 years. We should maybe talk about that experience a bit, broadcasting in the minor leagues.
1: Yeah, had uh, Buffalo for 11 years and, and actually five years in single A prior to that. So 16 total in the minor leagues. And, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, I was with three different teams in the minor leagues, two in the Carolina League, Kinston, and then Wilmington, Delaware, and then uh, Buffalo for 11. And all were just, I mean, invaluable just from a development standpoint, but just from a life standpoint and experience standpoint of fun things and great places to live and you know, when, I think when you work in the Carolina League, it was shortly after the movie Bull Durham. So, you you know, you kind of looked at a lot of the different towns that were in the movie and, and some of them were, were carryovers to real life. And, and so that was kind of neat. And, you know, Wilmington was a startup franchise and, and that was a lot of fun being there for the first three years of that franchise. And and then Buffalo is one of the, the really great franchises in, in AAA baseball and the opportunity to work there for a great ownership group. Uh, for 11 years was tremendous. I met my wife there. Our first son was born there. So a lot of happy memories uh, from our time in Buffalo, too.
3: And you also met some very interesting baseball players in in that decade plus, who are some of the most notables, not necessarily just because they became great major leaguers, but because they were, oh, I don't know, interesting uh, (laughs) people.
1: Well, great major leaguer-wise coming through there when when I was there. Grady Sizemore would certainly, you know, shoot right to the top. Victor Martinez came through there. So getting to know them on on their last steps to the major leagues was was, uh, really neat. But, you know, a player like a Jeff Manto, who for a while, uh, I think he had the the minor league total career home run record uh, for a little bit. And just to see how a veteran player, who would be up and back between the major leagues and the minor leagues several times a season, how he handled himself and prepared to play and then helped some of the younger players at that level. That was fun to watch. Uh, Casey Candell, who's the manager in Buffalo now, he played there toward the tail end of his career and was very similar to Manto in that, you know, in that regard that he could help some younger players. And obviously one of the the characters of the game, um, one of the funniest people I've ever met. So uh, there's four just to name a few. I'm sure there's many, many others, but those are four that that uh, kind of jump right to the forefront.
3: I believe you had Tori Lavello who was there later in his career.
1: Absolutely. And, and Tori Lavello, how about this? As a, not only a player, Toward the tail end of his career, and then he was part of their first title team that they had back in 1997. So he played and, and was a key part of that, and then came back. and And my last year as a broadcaster there was '06, and he was the manager there. So that was that was kind of neat to to see him come full circle. Uh, you know, finish his playing career with some good seasons in Buffalo, and then he went on and, and played elsewhere too. But then to circle back and then come back around as a AAA manager and then kind of get on that radar as a a major league manager candidate, that was kind of a cool thing to see.
3: And the team was, of course, is known as as the Bisons. Have you ever figured out the mystery of why there is an S and the end of Bison?
1: David, (laughs) you and my dad, he used to talk about that all the time. I was told when I got there, it's not Bisons, it's Bisons. So it kind of Mm. sounds like it's with a Z in the middle. I know Bucknell University, they are the bison because there really is no S on the end, but that's just the team name and and that's how they went with it. And I don't know if it's any deeper than that, but I guess grammatically uh, and technically it would be incorrect, but that's the franchise uh, nickname and it's been for years and, and that's what they go with.
3: And with franchise nicknames in mind, at the outset, I mentioned that we would talk about, about the name change in Cleveland. How has the fan base reacted to that? And is it something that is still, uh, an, uh, I don't know if it's an issue, uh, a controversy, or have the fans pretty much settled into, this is it going forward, we are now the Guardians?
1: No, it, it's not done by any means, I think, for the fans. I think until we get uh, into the season next year and and it's really happening because we're still the Indians. And even though the announcement was made, I think until you start seeing the logo around town and, and the, I mean, unbelievable amount of work they will need to do at the ballpark to replace every single signage, a piece of signage, whether it's big, you know, that huge sign on top of the scoreboard or even just as small a sign as, as a logo or or signage that says Indians at a restroom or concession stand. I mean, they have to do all of that, and it's going to take forever, and, and the detail is going to have to be really sharp. So I, I think until you see that, it's not going to hit home for a lot of people. With that said, it's kind of been in stages, David. Last summer when they announced there would be a name change, I think that that brought the initial uproar uh, from fans who who hoped it would always be Indians. And then this year knowing that there would be a name change when they finally settled on a name. Well, of course, in this day and age, whatever name you settle on, everyone's going to have an issue with it. It's just the way it is. But I think the encouraging part is that they had, I think there were more than a thousand candidates submitted. And in all the surveys they did, and they did a ton of surveys, uh the name Guardians came across the most. So that was a good starting point. And then the other starting point, Dave, quite frankly, there were probably some other names that that would have been great. But between copyright for a, a high school or a college or you know a, a small sports league in a in an obscure sport uh that might have had that name, it was hard to find something legally that, that, that they could use. But I think they were very excited to to finally settle on Guardians. There are some folks who really like it and they're excited to see it. I think there'll be some some people who will always struggle that we are not the Indians any longer. So that will come into play. But from a standpoint, it's kind of calmed down after the announcement. I think what was kind of maybe helped soften the blow a little bit when we were talking about this the other day. I'm not sure if you saw the video about the announcement of the name, but it was narrated by Tom Hanks. And... And he was pumped to do it. It's a long, detailed story on how they actually got him to do the narration, but he did and loved it and, and wants to be a part of it going forward. So I think that helped a little bit. And we'll see. as time. It's one of those things that it's only going to will get better as time goes by, and, and time will be the only thing that, that can make that better in a lot of cases for a lot of people.
3: And for listeners who do not know, well, where the name Guardians came from, perhaps you can give uh, a snapshot explanation.
1: Yeah, I, I think probably the the short version is the Hope Bridge, which um, gosh, it's it's uh, loosely affiliated with with I think Bob Hope's father uh, was part of the engineering team that that put that together. But there are statues at the the foot of that bridge, right outside the ballpark, that leads into Cleveland over the many rivers that run through the the city. And there are two statues of guardians right there, and and that's where it began, and it kind of played off of that, and and that's what they're going to go with.
3: And were you a guardians guy or were you a spiders guy leading in? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I've given you the truth, sir. I'm here. You have to be upfront.
1: You, you know what, Dave? I think it's okay to say. I kind of like the spiders, but. I think they were they were really struggling with copyright on spiders because there's a couple of other entities that had that already. And the other thing is, I guess they did some surveys, and there are enough people who really struggle with spiders. I mean, it's it's a serious problem um, for a lot of folks, and 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 maybe for some kids to put together the type of logo that would be kid friendly. That uh, that made it a, a difficult hurdle to pass. But you know, I think initially I thought it'd be kind of cool because. Uh, way back when, and I know it was a horrible team back in the 1920s or teens that uh, was the Spiders. I thought it'd been had been kind of cool, but there were so many hurdles to cross for that that just wouldn't wouldn't allow it to happen.
3: Yeah, 1890s. I actually believe it may have been 1899 or 1900 was the last last Spiders season. But you mentioned uh, kids, Jim. I don't believe I have ever asked you where you grew up and which team that you followed as a youngster.
1: You know what, David? I I was fortunate. I grew up in New Jersey probably, I don't know, depending on how you got there, maybe an hour from Yankee Stadium, an hour from Shea Stadium, an hour and a half from Philly. And to be in that area at a time when there was an interleague play, to be able to go and have your choice of a National League or an American League game to go see, that was awesome. So we hit them all. And we didn't go very often. Um, it was a, a big deal to go into New York City when, when you were lived where we live. So, you know, if we went in two or three times a year to see a ball game, that was a lot. So Yankees, Mets, occasional Phillies, because it was different. Sometimes Baltimore, if we we were really, you know, a little bit later on where you wanted to drive a little bit. So fortunate to be in an area where you could see uh, several different teams.
3: Yeah, let's circle back, Jim, to uh, the team that you are calling games from. I was at Progressive Field when Rajay Davis hit the World Series home run off of Aroldis Chapman, and I recall tweeting something along the lines of, I'm not sure where you're reading this, but the sound that you just heard came from Cleveland. That, that was quite the moment.
1: I think the, the most exciting moment in that ballpark, which is saying a lot because they had so many great moments in the 90s and that team from the 90s with all the sellout crowds and, and the all-stars at every position, I think will always be remembered as, as great teams and a, probably the best era of baseball in the city from a fan support standpoint, that perfect storm standpoint where it was a new ballpark, a great team all-stars at at just about every position. And if you remember, the Browns had left town at that time. So it really was the Indians, and the Cavaliers didn't have LeBron yet. So it really was. The the Indians were not only a a great team anyway with a new ballpark, it was the thing to do. So, you know, it it would be hard to top that. But with that said, uh, that one singular moment of the Rajay Davis home run not only was it unexpected because it came off of Raul Chapman, but for that one brief moment, you thought, all right, this team's going to, I know the Cubs had a curse <laughs> or or a long drought, however you want to put it. But I think a lot of people thought, all right, this is it. 1948 won't be the last time that the Indians have won a World Series. Maybe maybe it's 2016. And obviously what, what happened after that, it wasn't meant to be. But uh, that singular moment right there. And you're right. I, <laughs> it was so loud. You wouldn't have heard Tom wherever you were sitting calling that because it was just so loud in that ballpark. And what a great moment.
3: Yeah, I recall when uh, Carlos Santana came up later that inning and got ahead in the count. Thinking to myself, "This is it. He's going to hit the walk-off, and this ballpark will explode again." But as fate would have it, you know, it d- it did not happen for the fans of Cleveland.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, that was a, a tough pill to swallow. But um, gosh, what a ten days that that World Series was. Um, that's the only one I've been a part of. I know Tom was was here when they had the two World Series in the '90s, but. What a World Series. Just, you know, having that moment, the games in Cleveland, the games at Wrigley were a blast. You know, just seeing those fans go bananas for a World Series was really neat. So yeah, I mean, that'll be a memorable week to 10 days for sure.
3: Yeah, one last thought on that World Series, Jim. When the clubhouse door opened after Game 7, I remember walking in and uh, Brian Shaw, who gave up the the winning hit and the winning run, losing hit, losing run, was standing at his locker ready to field any and all questions, which he did very calmly and professionally. And I thought that was, that was outstanding. He did not hide. And I've thought very well of Brian Shaw since that moment.
1: He's the best. And, and to have him back now, after a couple of years away, now he's kind of that elder statesman for a young bullpen. And and you're not surprised at all that that he's had that type of impact because you're right. I mean, he had a great five year run here with the Indians, and because of the amount of times he pitched, every once in a while he he'd give up the game winning home run, but he would always be someone who would would be at his locker, and and if he had to answer questions, he would do so, uh, you know, just to, as professionally as as anybody in the game.
3: And you mentioned, Shaw being back, the current team is not a World Series contender. Whether or not they are close or far away, I think, is maybe a harder question to answer.
1: You know what, David? I, it's interesting because I think, you know, you look at the game today and the teams that are not in postseason contention, so many of them are, are all right, we're in a rebuild and it, ah, so we lose 100 games. What's the big deal? You know, that's part of going through a rebuild. Well, you know, I don't think the Indians feel that they're in that spot because going into this season, they certainly felt that they were a postseason team. But within two months, the five starting pitchers from their rotation coming out of spring training were no longer in the starting rotation, and three of them are... You know, arguably some of the best in the American League and Shane Bieber, Aaron Savali and, and Zach Plesac all missed significant time and and Bieber's still out. So that's hard to overcome. And they did have a younger lineup and, and suffered some injuries there, too. But I, I think the key is and this is a roundabout way of getting to the point was they have really made a lot of a season where a lot of things didn't go well. And and if this is a rebuilding year, and I, I know they're kind of hesitant to even put it in that term, but they're they're doing a lot of things to position themselves very strongly for the future without losing 100 games. I mean, they have a real good chance to be a better than 500 ball club by the time the season ends. They've been right around that mark most of the season. And if, if that's a tough year that you're 500 and, and you can use that as a springboard and get right back in the thick of things next year, then I think that speaks to really the the quality of the front office and how they go about things. And that's not bad because they've had a great stretch of playoff seasons, and uh, you know if that if that's not in the cards for this year, but they're still a 500 team, and they they find out about a lot of young kids for next year, get some of their starting pitching back, and and because of some of the others that that had to make starts this year, they've come along and they found some some good starting pitching then I think it's been a really successful season. And I think they would look at that minus a postseason berth as as a pretty successful season this year.
3: Yeah, with the future in mind, Jim, and we just have a, a few more minutes here. Francisco Lindor was the face of the franchise. A sour taste was left in the mouth of a lot of Cleveland fans when he departed. You now look at players like Jose Ramirez, who I have referred to as probably the most underrated player in baseball. Are the Indians positioned to keep players like Ramirez?
1: You know what, David? A lot may depend on on how the CBA shakes out. I think you hope that that they've gotten through a tough stretch with with no fans a year ago, less fans this year at the start. I think every team in baseball has had challenges to to kind of get through this period. And so hopefully the Indians are on the other side of that and they can start building back up again because I think what we saw in in 16 and 17 is when they feel they have a real chance not only at the postseason but but a deep run and, and perhaps a world series run they've been willing to spend and and hopefully they can get back to that how does it line up with where ramirez is shane bieber you know in a couple of years to keep them some of that may depend on on how quickly some of the young talent develops and then what they can add this off season but Look, they they view Ramirez, I'm sure, as as you do. They don't look at him as underrated. They look at him as, you know, a cornerstone of the franchise now on the offensive side. And, and certainly Bieber and Savali and Pleszak as those cornerstones on the pitching side, all still very young and, and, and not in their free agent years yet. So I think there's a lot of optimism along those lines.
3: And what about the person in the dugout, you know, making out the lineup? I know Terry Francona has had health issues and hopefully... He will come back next year healthy, but if for some reason he decides to step down, is this the Hales job going forward?
1: You know, I'm I'm not sure. You know, and I think it's definitely first things first on that. They want to see how Tito is, and he had the the second of two surgeries yesterday, and by all accounts, it went well. And and now now there's that process that you know he rehabs. Tries to see where he is. I don't know what the timetable is where they need to make a decision on next year. But they want to give him a chance. It's early September. They want to give him a chance to, to go through his rehab, um, get himself in the best physical position possible where he can be at his best for a full major league season because he makes a difference. And and going back to where this team is in terms of, of their record this year, I think there's a lot of people who feel that that first half of the season when they were above 500 for, for a long time or right near it, a lot of that was because of, of Tito piecing, uh, piecing it together and, and working his magic in that clubhouse and making the younger uh, players feel a part of it and, and the veteran players, you know, a big part of it too. And, you know, he's so good at that. So I think until they know his status for next year, and again, that's a couple of months off. I really don't know that they want to go too far down the road of, of who's next.
3: And we are speaking on Wednesday, two days before uh, this podcast airs. The Hall of Fame induction ceremonies are happening now. And I think it's pretty safe to say that down the road, Terry Francona will be elected into the Hall of Fame as a manager.
1: Well, boy, it'd be you'd be shocked if, if it wasn't an easy decision for most people, just... um you know look at the career the two world series with boston that alone you would think would <laughs> you know he, he was the curse breaker there and and uh, and then won another one so that alone you think would do it but i think what he's done here he came here and i think a lot of people were shocked because it was not a it's not a big market team that can spend its way out of trouble and and just go get whoever they need to to get over the hump and and he's done heading into this season the indians Uh, during his time here, dating back to 2013, had more wins in the regular season than any team in the American League. And and to me, that's remarkable. So, you know, he came within an inning of of winning another World Series with the Indians. And so there's a a lot there that that would seem to make it an extremely easy decision for anyone who who has a, a, a vote on that
3: yes i would hope so Jim, to close let's uh, jump ahead to the fast approaching off season not for the baseball team that you call games for but rather your own what's on tap once the the final game is is done
1: uh you know i just kind of getting reacquainted with with my family i have an older son who's who's off to college a younger son who is in fourth grade so you know i think anybody in the game whether they play coach you know those who who follow it on a on a day-to-day basis, you kind of use October and November to, you know, kind of catch up on the things that you put off all spring and summer because of the great game that we're in. But you, you kind of get back to some life things that you need to take care of. So there'll be a lot of that, and, you know, maybe a couple of trips and, and things like that with my family, but just a lot of family time and and having some fun around the house and and then uh, getting ready for next year, seeing what next year holds.
3: So how many days will you be home, Jim, before your wife walks up with the off-season to-do list for jars?
1: <laughs> About six hours. <laughs>
3: That's a great place to close. Jim, uh, it was great seeing you at Fenway uh, last week, and it was great to have you as a guest on Fangraphs Audio. Thank you, David. And thank you, everybody, for listening.
2: Hello again, folks. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from my balmy front yard where it's Wednesday night and the Dominican Winter League draft wrapped up a couple hours ago. I'm joined by Brendan Golowski, who's here to talk about the uh, the league and the results. Uh, how's it going, Brendan? Doing pretty well,
4: Eric. How about yourself?
2: I'm doing okay. I'm looking at the, the forecast here in Arizona for like the next week, and It's cranking up like the monsoon season seems to have ended and now we just have like the tail end of our summer where it's hot and dry again and i'm just kind of waiting for that to to go away i thought when i came back from this family wedding that things would start to tick down into like the the upper 90s which is very livable here uh but it it will not quit so i'm just kind of waiting for that to go away and for instructs to start after uh well i guess we'll have like another week of complex level ball here and then And things kind of shut down for a couple weeks until instructs start. All right, well, let's talk about this uh, Dominican Winter League draft. For folks who don't know, in the winter when you're starved for baseball, the Dominican Winter League is a great place to look. The the streaming package has grown. If you have, like, Apple TV or some other means of streaming stuff, like, there is just... A DR sports app that you can download and pay, I think, like 12 bucks, I think, for the entire season of games. And you're watching culturally relevant baseball and a bunch of good prospects.
4: And it's really good production value too. The video feeds are way better than you're going to see on MILB TV. It's it's pretty close to big league video production quality. Spanish speaking announcers, which is kind of fun as well. There are an insane number of advertisements. And you're just going to have to kind of get used to hearing beer ads in between pitches. But overall, it's a really good product. Yeah,
2: I highly recommend it. It is the type of thing that I wish MLB Network would stream every once in a while. Like there's just a lot of good winter and fall ball between the fall league and the various winter leagues in Australia and Venezuela and the Dominican Republic. And obviously the technology piece and the infrastructure piece are, are different in each of those locations, but things in the DR now are at the point where, yeah, like you said, the streams are of really high quality. So, you know, the, uh, the type of baseball that you're going to watch is like the equivalent of double or triple a. There are a lot of veteran, Dominicano, like journeyman type guys, Emilio Bonifacio and Juan Francisco and Jumbo Diaz. And then you also have like the frustrating quad A type guys like Esteban Floreal and Jesus Sanchez and Franchi Cordero, uh, Jose Siri. And then you have the really young players, most of which we're going to touch on tonight. So like Wander Franco has been in the league in the last couple of years. Uh, Fernando Tatis, uh, Vidal Brujan, like a lot of the the really young Dominican prospects who are like the draft eligibility is basically like you played a full season ball and there's like a small contingent of uh, foreign players who teams are allowed and mostly that gets devoted to to pitching and there are only six teams and so it's pretty easy to follow for the entire season. I assume that they'll have fans back in the stands this year and it's like a wild time because they care a lot about it. And uh, tonight was the draft so like if I was going to give folks a general overview of what the draft is like, I'd say that, like, last year, well, there wasn't a draft last year because there was COVID, but the in the 2019 draft, you had, like, Geraldo Perdomo from the Diamondbacks go third overall. He didn't really play a whole lot in 2020, but, like, Jeremy Pena, who went sixth, played a ton, and Wander Franco would have played all year if he hadn't had a biceps injury, and Julio Rodriguez played for, like, half of last season for Escojito so you do get a lot of like the top end prospects playing
4: I'd hey add that that Jeremy Pena actually may have helped his prospect stock a little bit last year not that Definitely, that really yeah. matters and in, insofar as have what the Astros think of him but folks paying attention to the Get of any kind of last year would have seen that like, hey this Jeremy Pena guy can actually hit a little bit so that's a lot of fun too
2: and him specifically it'll be interesting cuz he's missed all year. I don't know exactly the trajectory of his rehab at this point but he might just go back and play for yep. Estrellas Orientales. Let's let's talk about the since there are only six teams. Let's touch on some of the the teams and like what the rosters look like right now. So like Aguilas Cibaeñas, they won the league last year and this has typically been like a Cardinals pipeline team. Uh John Nagowski was on the roster last year, Rogel Ravelo, Edmundo Sosa, Juan Ligueras, Melchie Cabrera, Robel Garcia, uh, Victor Robles. Like, these are the types of names you'll see playing like uh, in Dominican Winter Ball for Aguilas, Marcos Diplon who was in the Futures game this year, sort of an, uh, like a reliever prospect Naftali Feliz, Michael Inoa, Uneski Maya. like you do have a mix of, like I said, the prospects. Pitching tends to skew older and you have a lot of these journeyman guys fitting in there.
4: They also had one of the best, remember some guys, candidates in the league last year, Arismendi Alcantara who is somehow only right. 28.
2: <laughs> yep, the league is full of those types of guys and then there are like marginal prospects 2. Tigres de Lice Your Mercedes was there over the over the winner both Bonifacios Jorge and Emilio, Wellington Castillo. Michael DeLeon, who was an interesting prospect for a little while, like, it is a lot of these types of, if you are big on following prospects, and in general, a lot of guys who sort of flame out, and are interesting for a while, and then don't really have big league careers, still end up down here, and, you know, it's like six weeks worth of play, and so guys like Albert Abreu are getting, you know, half a dozen starts down there, they're only lasting, like, three or four innings most of the time, but you get a look at him, and it does play a part in, like, our evaluation at the site because it's the most recent looks that we have at a lot of these guys. So let's take a, a run through some of these draft classes from this year and then maybe talk about how some of these guys from the past years might fit in too. Because like once you draft a guy in this league, you have their rights. And even if they don't play for your team right away, they might end up playing in later years. So for example, like Braylon Marquez, a top 100 prospect of the Cubs. He's been out all year. He's going to have to pick up innings at some point. Either in fall league or in winter ball somewhere, he's already on. I think the Gigantes del Cibao lineup in Lee He didn't play for them last year, even though he was drafted two years ago. But like this is a perfect off season for him to join that team. So you know, we're not going to be covering many of those guys. There are definitely some some dudes who are going to be in winter ball who fit that bill where they've been drafted in years past but haven't played yet, and then it just lines up developmentally that all parties involved want the player to to play in lead home this offseason. And uh, that's what will happen. We're just going to focus strictly on uh, what happened today. So the team that are the first pick in the draft was Estrellas Orientales, which is Jeremy Pena's team. Fernando Tatis came back and played for this team in the playoffs last offseason, but had his coming out party for this club a couple of years ago. Robinson Cano plays for this team. He also kind of like put on the spike during the playoffs last year Uh, hit a couple big home runs in the playoffs too. Uh, They picked first in this year's draft. They took Marco Luciano, the Giants shortstop first, George Valera, Cleveland outfielder who's also a top 100 prospect. They got him in the second round and really ended up taking a bunch of Cleveland and Giants players throughout the uh, entire draft. Do you have any kind of general thoughts on their selections or some of the individual players that they picked?
4: Yeah, I thought they had a really strong draft, actually. I thought no perhaps no surprise since they got to go first. But again, like you said, Luciano and Valera are top one hundred prospects. And then they got a couple of sort of statistical overperformers with their next couple of picks. So like Andy Rodriguez, catcher, who I think has played a little outfield in the pirates system. Yeah. I think we had him Eric we had him as like a forty in the offseason, but he's posted really strong numbers across two levels this year. Jose Tena, their fourth rounder, one of a million. Infielders in Cleveland system who are twenty years old and from the Dominican Republic. Uh, this is another guy who had a, a pretty strong campaign. It's a two eighty type hitter this year with with fifteen bombs. With a twenty year old in high A, so just a lot to like. Uh, a lot of lot of intrigue in that lineup. And these guys are not all going to going to hit or hit well. Lidam right. is a notoriously pitcher friendly league and there's not a lot of patience with young players if you don't perform right away. So I don't want to don't want to foster the illusion that you can just turn on an Astros game and, and get those four guys in the lineup right. on every you know every night of the year, but odds are at least a couple of them are going to hang around and play a lot and that should make for one of the more exciting follows of the winter.
2: Yeah, like you said, it's there's no guarantee that any of these guys are going to play. The playing time is, is pretty... Like, if you don't perform very quickly in, in Lidome, you you often end up getting benched. So, there's just so many young shortstops that were, were drafted here that they can't all play next year. Uh, so, like, for example, if I'm looking back at a couple drafts ago by Estrellas, uh, they took Jeremy Pena in the first round and he played a ton. They took Emmanuel Classe in the second round. Uh, I think he, he pitched a little bit for them. Some of that was because he was coming off of a, a suspension. And then that's sort of it. Like Rubendi Jaquez has barely played for them. They took him in the fourth round and on and on. Like Gregory Santos is another one. Like Gregory Santos is a top 100 prospect. They took him in 2019. He had a PED suspension this season. He's going to have to pick up innings somewhere in the winter. Well, it might as well be for Estrella. So again, like drafted two years ago, but but likely to play for them this offseason. Some of the other guys mm. that Astrea's took that were interesting, um, and again, like they went nuts on really young shortstops. So Luciano in the first round, we'll see how much he plays. I don't know if there's incentive for the Giants to send him to uh, winter ball down there. Maybe if they want him to work somewhere else defensively, that's a, a good reason to do it. Valera's been hurt a little bit during the course of his career, uh, but mostly his, has been healthy this year. So I don't know if, if he's a candidate to get sent. A lot of the other guys are very young. Alex Ramirez from the Mets. Very projectable outfielder. He's he's super-duper young. Then they ended up taking a couple interesting, like, curveball relief-type guys. Uh, Randy Vasquez, who was originally mentioned as, like, part of the Joey Gallo trade with Texas. And then as, like, the reports got refined during during that deadline deal uh, reportage, uh, he was removed from that. He's got, like, a 3,100, 3,200 RPM breaking ball. He He might... Actually pitch this offseason. Jose Salvador, who the Angels got from the Reds in a trade a couple years ago, uh, lefty with a good breaking ball. He's another good one, uh, I think, to, to stash away a name that'll probably throw like 10 or so innings for this team this offseason. Jerson Ramirez with Cleveland, another like hard throwing guy with a changeup. I think he just got put on the IL. So there's there's a chance that, to pick up innings again, like over the course of a couple of weeks in the offseason that he throws out of uh, this bullpen. And then, again, just like a bunch more relief-looking arms towards the back of the 16-round draft here. Uh, Perlander Baroa from San Francisco, Yuri Ramos from the Cubs, Abner Uribe from Milwaukee. All hard-throwing guys, especially Uribe, has been over 100 pretty consistently. So, uh, really interesting. Like, you'll see uh, some of the teams we're going to talk about take an older guy here and there, aside from some of these pitchers who are, like, in their mid-20s, uh, like Vasquez and Salvador. These are all super duper young guys who Estrella's took with their 16 picks. So, they're just kind of, you know, taking talented guys and then they'll just sort of see how it plays out over the next handful of years as these guys need to develop in the offseason. Their parent clubs in MLB will Hopefully allow it, and they'll get to play here. But there are no like older. We need to take a guy who can contribute for us right now. Type picks here for Estreas. Was there any? Were there any of the drafts that really stuck out to you? Estrella's I just started with them because they picked first. But mm-hmm. curious if there's anybody else that kind of stood out.
4: Yeah, less on a like a team by team level, but just a comment on sort of the overall strategy here. The top couple of rounds, interesting combination of guys who are statistical overperformers uh like Yainer Diaz uh the Houston catcher who went 3rd overall to Escadijo. um and then somebody who got picked 3 picks later uh Robert Forson who hasn't really hit much at all uh but the Toros took all. him in the first round yeah and so just kind of a i, I don't know if that's an upside play if that's just questionable scouting I think uh, to pick a team to focus in on the Toros draft left me a little bit disappointed. They did pick up uh, Luis Medina in the eighth round, uh, which seemed like really good value there, but overall not as much pedigree uh, as you'd got from some of the other teams picking around them.
2: Yeah. And then I think that, you know, if again, if we're just kind of going team by team, Gigantes del Cibao picked second in this draft. And they moved into the, let's take some arms, you know, of perhaps dubious command.
4: Really early.
2: A little earlier, yeah. So uh, they picked second. They took Noelvi Marte from Seattle.
4: I think that they, he might play for them this offseason. I'm curious to see if I, we can talk about Marte for a second. This is a really young player for the level. Julio Rodriguez, for instance, who obviously didn't have a 2020 and so needed to go to lead to pick up at bats, but didn't have any experience outside a ball really got chewed up last year. And so Marte is somebody who will have at least had competitive at bats much more recently than Rodriguez did. But if he does get down there, that's going to be a challenge for him. And how, how do you think he's going to fare against that caliber of arm down there?
2: I think it'll be okay. I do think that there's definitely a gap between the quality of the hitter in Lee dome and the pitchers. Like a lot of times, some of the pitching down there will have been signed out of indie ball and will be like some of the better, more consistent pitching down there. So one of the more important arms last year was a guy named Dan Otero, who's like a lefty who sits in the mid to upper eighties, but he's got a plus curveball that he threw more than half the time And that guy was good for, like, five or six really dynamite innings when when he was on. And that is one of, like, the more valuable arms to go down there. Vlad Gutierrez with the the Reds Mm -hmm. pitched for Lise last year. That's, like, another, like, an ace in this league. That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like, Gigantes last year, their infield was, like... Ronald Guzman was playing first base and playing for his job, basically. Like, the Rangers mm. were inclined to move off of him, and they did. They traded for Nate Lowe, and, like, Guzman hasn't really gotten a whole lot of playing time this year. But, like, at shortstop last year, O'Neal Cruz from the Pirates played a little bit of short. Abhiado Avellino who is, like, an upper-level performer, uh, used to be with San, or with uh, the Yankees, then with San Francisco. He played a lot of middle infield for them, too. So I would think that with Cruz having a fully healthy – season with Pittsburgh and playing all year that he w- he's unlikely to return as someone who gets shortstop reps here uh, next year. Uh, Richard Urania, another guy who kind of flamed out at the upper levels with Toronto, uh, is another one on this roster. So Uh, I think there's a real chance that that he plays. The Mariners obviously have been inclined to let their guys go down there. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Julio last year. So I think there's a pretty good chance that that we see Noel Vimarte right away. Other Gigantes drafted guys. uh, The first name that I didn't know, actually, in the third round, Mm -hmm. Wendell. Floranus. This guy's pitching in Mexico right now. He's kind of interesting. I did some work on him within the last couple hours. I think he's 27. Pretty well-built guy. Longer arm action has been up to 95 in Mexico. Uh, The most recent stuff I have on him is from mid-August. So it's like low to mid-90s with a slider and a splitter. Mostly the swing and misses are coming from fastballs at the top of the zone though. So this is like a need draft pick the first anyone made in this in this draft you know was the second pick in the third round so uh, the other guys that they took the over Piguero from Pittsburgh Jorner y- Fajardo uh, Dariel Lopez Adrian Florencio um, and Manuel Mejia all these guys are from the Pirates org I mentioned earlier that O'Neill Cruz was here too so you can clearly see there's like a pipeline from Pittsburgh that like you know there's an agreement here like we'll take your guys we'll give them reps in the offseason and you you know that helps us have roster depth and your org is getting, like, consistent development in, in this space. So you now I would assume that because O'Neal Cruz played here last year that Piguero might get some reps, too. Uh, he was their second-round pick. My my guy, Heriberto Hernandez from the Rays, who was part of that Nate Lowe trade, they took in the fifth round. Helcreas Oliveira lefty from the Colorado system who throws really hard and has a good-looking delivery, but he doesn't have any real idea where it's going. They took him uh, in the sixth. Anybody else stand out to you from the uh, Gigantes draft?
4: No, not particularly. I I was actually looking at Lise as my as the next team I wanted to dive into, and another couple, right. an, another system where there's some uh, kind of interesting contrast at the top, and then um, actually a little bit of depth uh, towards the bottom of their draft too. But in Aurelvis Martinez and Johan Rojas, you had two guys who coming into this year, Martinez had more of a pedigree at this point, but two guys who were among the toolsiest players in their system, and one has taken off. Uh, And one has really uh, had a a pretty disappointing campaign.
2: Yeah. You know, Johan Rojas has been a little bit better of late. And Aurelvis Martinez, based on the strength of how he looked during extended and then in low A, was, you know, being asked about in trades at the deadline. And the Blue Jays seemed reticent to to part with him.
4: They traded Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson, but wanted to hold on to Martinez. It's very interesting.
2: Yep. And there's definitely like Aurelvis is... I think clearly in the tier below Marco Luciano and Noel V. Marte in terms of like lining up prospects globally. But yeah, like to the ability to take a shortstop with that kind of bat speed is 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 pretty rare. Johan Rojas in the second round, again, like super toolsy from the Philly system, really raw. Ellie de la Cruz. Another like super lanky, projectable guy in the red system, crushed during extended, has been promoted a couple levels at this point. Definitely a big, big riser in the course of the year. And then they took guys, their their draft is pretty heavy on like big upside, except with Felix Valerio in the fifth round, who's like little mini contact-oriented Milwaukee, second base, third base type guy. Uh but yeah, a lot of really young guys in the Lise draft. Nasim Nunez from Miami. Uh, one of the better defensive players in the minors was uh, an American high schooler. Um, I'm not sure whether or not he counts against like the um, foreign player limit that that they have. If not, then like that's a great pick. Alan Serda in the sixth round power swing and miss corner outfield type in, in the red system. Uh, Michael Escato with Pittsburgh came over in the tie on deal from the Yankees during the offseason. Luis Frias in the eighth round from Arizona. Uh, Like mid '90s with a splitter and a curveball, Juan Thin from Seattle in the in the tenth round. Both he and Frias are maybe uh, relief type guys. It sort of runs through the rest of the uh, the Lise draft picks here. It's a lot of like arm strength relief type uh, young pitchers.
4: I can't imagine Frias and Ten pitch down there, given how many innings they threw stateside. So that seems like a pick maybe for the future.
2: Yeah, I would think so. Carlos Duran with the Dodgers was was taken very late in the draft. He's a giant, six seven, two thirty. At age twenty, he's yeah he's thrown almost eighty innings this year too across about twenty starts. So it's it's hard to look at the arms who they've taken here and identify clear candidates for uh for play immediately. So let's move on to uh, oh Lise. By the way, uh, in terms of like what Lise has right now, I mentioned Vlad Gutierrez. I doubt that he returns just because he's pitched a whole year here, um in he's MLB an basically. Big leaguer now.
4: Yeah.
2: Uh right. So I, I doubt it. But Emilio Bonifacio is like a mainstay in Dominican baseball. <laughs> he's, you know, one of the he's he's a star in the Dominican Republic. He and Jorge both, I think, uh are locks to be down there. Dawal Lugo probably too. Uh Dawal Lugo was like once part of was he at some point maybe part of the scherzer deal with between arizona and detroit i think that might be true
4: yeah i think yeah like
2: irvin santana pitched for this team last year jaime Berea, adonis medina kent emanuel john carlos mejia who was hurt so it's kind of a mix of guys i wonder that we're we're gonna see elvis luciano maybe uh danny jimenez has been a rule five pick a couple of times he was down there too Uh, and and really what you're looking at like i said is like guys making five or six starts out of the rotation they'll throw about you know between 20 and 30 innings depending on the length of those starts and then the relievers all kind of go, you know, between uh, five and ten games, depending on whether or not they're a, a long two-inning relief type guy or a single-inning relief type guy. They're going to throw about ten-innings over the course of about five or six weeks. All right, let's move on to uh, Escojito, Leonides de Escojito. Some folks who are eagle-eyed uh, will recognize a former baseball prospectus, prospect writer who works for Leonides de es- Del Escojito. Kind of can't miss him if you watch the the broadcast. This is an interesting group, too. This is the one that had... Joe Dunand from North Carolina State from the Miami system last year. He had a pretty good uh had a pretty good winter. Uh, Gregory Polanco, Franchi Cordero, Julio Rodriguez, Esteban Florial, like big, big tools here. Vlad Guerrero Jr. played uh on this roster for a little bit last year. I want to say like about a week. So pretty star-studded group in Escojito. Their draft this year. They they the surprise pick of the first round. They took Yiner Diaz, who was traded from Cleveland to Houston uh, around the deadline in, in a smaller deal. He's been old for the level throughout his career, but he hits for power. Uh, he's a bigger bodied kid, so there is some question about how much he can like be mobile back there defensively. But he's always performed. He has legit power. It's rare power for a catcher. Uh, I, I think. That you don't take a guy like this in the first round of a draft like this, considering the way the other teams behaved, unless he's going to play for this team right next now. year. Yeah. So I have to believe that like, if I'm trying to remember who some, I think one of the other Julio Rodriguez was maybe a catcher for this team last year. And I couldn't tell you, Brett Sullivan was also also caught for this team last year, who's in the in the race system. They took Austin Wells, the yankees catcher in the last round here so maybe there's a chance he comes down uh considering that they had a, a gringo catcher last year so oh i'm missing jason dominguez jason dominguez went in the third round of this draft to Escojito, so another like superstar level guy potentially sort of in the mix i don't know how do you feel about the escohito draft any other names kind of stick out to you
4: yeah is it eddie Leonard or eddie yeah eddie Leonard. Eddie he leonard um Great
2: yeah utility guy
4: Yeah, the theme of their draft, I think, was just, Dominguez aside, perhaps, was statistical overperformers.
2: Yeah, immediate utility type guys, it seems like, huh?
4: Yeah, and Leonard really fit that bucket. And he's had a really good season. He put up big numbers uh, at Rancho and and, uh, low A ball now, which is where the California league is. And then after a bump to high A Great Lakes, 30 games, eight home runs. His walk and strikeout numbers are even better than they were down in low A. So I'm curious to get another get a look at him against better pitching, just sort of see if we can learn a little bit more about the bat. He's only 20. Like Derek said, kind of a utility look and profile. But occasionally these guys end up just hitting a little more than you think they're going to. And there are a couple of markers there that suggest that Leonard at least has a chance to be one of those guys. And so, again, given where he was drafted, suggests that he's somebody who could see the field this winter. Uh, and I'm uh, looking forward to watching him play.
2: Alright, so moving on to Torrells last day, you mentioned that they took Robert Poisson with the final pick of the first round. He is having a really rough year. He did not look good to me in person during the course of the spring. I've moved off him quite a bit. I still think the broad strokes of the profile there are, well, they give him some outs, so to speak. Like, he is a big frame switch hitting kid who can make a good looking play at shortstop once in a while. So, you know, he's still, even if he falls short of his ultimate, like, Goldilocks zone ceiling there's potential utility there. Uh, so I still have him 40 I don't know. Like It just feels like they, of all of the young, h- high-profile shortstops, they just took the guy who was kind of left last. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel great about him as like a baseball prospect right now based on how poor he looked in person and then he's striking out 40% of the time in low A.
4: Yeah. Well, you'd have rather had Leo Verpiguerro anyway, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, yes, I would have. Yes. I don't know. I think it's fair to appreciate like this kid was probably known and heralded in a more intense way in this country. Um, obviously mm-hmm. like there's much to do made about him before he signed, like while he was thought to be an Atlanta brave, you know, like this kid's been through a lot of stuff and now he's like kind of fallen on his face in low way. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if he plays or not. Uh, like I said, playing time can be kind of tenuous here. And if he does what he's done in low way, for a week in Lidome, he will just be riding the pine. Yuri yeah. Biel Angeles, who they took in the second round from the Padres system, is the antithesis of this. He is not physically impressive at all, and he just rakes. Like he just puts the bat head on the ball. He did it all throughout extended. I put him in a fairly aggressive spot on the on the Padres list. He went to Low A as an 18 year old and crushed uh, the. You know, again, it's the Cali hitting environment, but he hit there. And Manuel Valdez from the Houston system, they took in the third round, stocky, left-hitting, like, fringe defender at second base, who also has performed statistically. Navy Castillo in the fourth round, uh, D-backs prospect, who I tend to like a little bit more than than most others. Uh, just big frame kid with bat speed and a pretty athletic swing. It's like first base left field, trying to find a spot for him. Um, yeah, other than that, they they took a bunch of big arm strength guys. Angel Felipe from the Rays system. Uh, Luis Medina from the Yankee system, who's a top 100 guy. Ronnie Simone from the D-back system, who they got from the Cubs for Andrew Chafin at the deadline two deadlines ago. Neraldo Catalina, again, another arm strength dude from the Rays system in the 15th round. Uh, Junior Perez from Oakland, swing and miss uh, corner outfielder who the A's got from San Diego for Jorge Mateo. Uh, I think that was the very first post-pandemic trade was Jorge Mateo for for a player to be named later who became Junior Perez. He's striking out a lot. So kind of a confusing draft. I don't know a lot off the top of my head about like Yefri Yan. Uh, Diego Hernandez with uh, the Royals is listed as a center fielder slash catcher. I've seen him play the outfield, but not catch. He's kind of a fringe prospect for me. So it's so kind of an odd uh, Toros draft. Who haven't we talked about yet? Have I missed anybody?
4: I don't think we've covered uh, Aguilas. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so na- naturally, now that we, you know, kind of poo-pooed the Toros draft, that that crew's going to lead him to the championship for the next five years. And that's <laughs> just kind of... That's how this league works a little well,
2: bit. Well, yeah, I think that's that's true. Like, it is so hard to predict. There's pr- There could be Toros who are going to be a huge, huge part of some deep postseason run. You know, Yamaiko Navarro is on this roster. So, like... <laughs> Yeah, Pete O'Brien, uh, who's typically among the league home run leaders, he plays for Toros. And, like they just have older guys like that, Gary Sanchez, to recoup some of his value and get some reps. Last year, played like f- twenty games or something like that for Toros. Vidal Bruhan, uh, Miguel Andujar, like you can see some of these guys being on the roster next year and them like mm-hmm. <laughs> winning, I guess. But, but yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's Toros del Este. So the Aguilas draft again. This is the team that won it last year. It's Cardinals pipeliney. y, uh, typically John Nagowski. I mentioned Ron Ravelo, Edmundo Sosa. Like you can see the kind of guys who they rostered last year when they won. Their draft this year, it was interesting. Uh, a couple of trade in. A lot guys. of strikeout type guys. Alexander Canario, the Cubs, who came over in the Chris Bryant deal from the Giants. Elite bat speed, questionable approach. Uh, Ezekiel Duran from Texas who was part of the Gallo deal second base can like you know barely play second base but has huge power for that position so you try to make it work it's like all guys who have been traded alberto rodriguez with seattle who came over from toronto do you remember what deal that was a couple years ago i, I can't recall
4: uh no, no no stop my head yep
2: no idea. Uh, but you can see like the Toronto pipeline here. Miguel Geraldo, Nasuel Paulino, Sebastian Espino, a dude you like. Speak to Espino. They took him in the 12th round. He's, he's a pop-up guy who you kind of dig.
4: Yeah, I do. He's a guy who has a kind of a lousy approach. He can lunge at the breaking stuff. He's pretty swing happy in all directions. His walk numbers aren't terrible, but are also kind of the product of just running a lot of deep counts because there's some swing and miss in the game. But it's also big tools on the left side of the infield. Uh, Legitimate power, a bit of a bad ball hitter also. I spoke with a scout. I was at a a series that he played at. Uh, I spoke with a scout who thought he was the best player on the field. And that was a series that had Jordan Adams, Aurelvis Martinez, a couple other fringy Blue Jays prospects. And that was a series where Martinez didn't show well. But I think it also just speaks to the tools that Espino has. You also mentioned Geraldo there, who's a guy who ranks pretty high on our Blue Jay system right now. I think he's our sixth seventh player. Yeah, he's in the forty pluses. Yeah, what do you think of his season so far?
2: He's had a pretty generic season. He's a bowling ball. He's one of these like projectionless infielders who has big bat speed and so you're just like alright look there's power here now so I don't care that there's not a lot of projection and then yeah ideally someone like this would have performed a little bit better. I think that the 40 plus future value designation is basically like hey the likelihood is that this guy is a 40 which is a an above replacement level player the type of guy who you know, plays a role for your team but is not like an everyday player let alone a star but the plus means like hey this guy's got something about him that means that there might be upside above that but not so So he's not so close to the big leagues that like I'm just valuing him in that future value tier right now. And so that's what Geraldo is where it's like, look, you know, it's a righty hitting projection list, second, third base, not a shortstop, but there's like rare bat speed here. So I want to value this guy, even though the broad strokes is like, hey, this this guy's role is probably as a 40 bat speed means I want to round up. I want to value him more than a generic player of this sort, even if that player is a little bit closer to the big leagues. And so I'll I'll 40 plus a guy like this. And and yeah, like it's interesting to look at the hierarchy that these teams have created here. Some of it uh, you would guess is maybe influenced by team need, but the teams didn't really draft like that in a way that, Feels overt and clear. Mm-hmm. So, like, to see Jose Augusto Rodriguez in the White Sox system, who's like a middle infielder with great feel for contact and a bad approach and like below average power, he went in the second round here to Aguilas. But Ezekiel Duran, who I have, and like, I have Jose Rodriguez stuff pretty good in the White Sox system, which is bad. But like, Ezekiel Duran, I have. Towards the back of the hundred, and he went in the third round of this draft. And like Alberto Rodriguez, who I don't really like very much at all, went in the fourth round, and Yuri Perez of the Marlins, who's like the six seven kid who he's about the same age and looks just as good as about every prep arm that went in the first round of this year's draft, except for maybe Jackson Job. Like he's at least as good as literally every other high school pitcher his age, except for Jackson Job. Like that guy went in the fifth round of this draft. So I do think it it shines a, a little bit of a light on what these staffs of people working for these teams think about some of the players. Obviously, you know, like your mileage may vary depending on how badly you need to fill your lead home roster with guys who you need. But I think especially in the first like eight or so rounds of this draft, teams just drafted based on long-term upside, it feels like, just looking at the lists. So, you know, Aldenis Sanchez, who went in the ninth round to Lise who was the player to be named later from the Rays to the Yankees for a smaller deal earlier this year. Like he went before Juan Then, who I have like a setup man grade on. And so like that probably means I need to like at least reevaluate Al Dennis Sanchez this off season.
4: Mm -hmm. And when you're drafting for upside in this league, the major league draft don't want to call it a crapshoot, but certainly has some of those characteristics Yeah. in this setup. It really is because you can kind of get, burned at both ends if you get a guy who can't hack it obviously that's not going to help you very much but on the on the other side of things if you draft a wander franco he may only play five games for you ever because it goes right. down there hits really well gets his quota in and then it's just a big leaguer and is done with league yep. at that point point. and that's why it's i think the relationship piece of this is is the
2: thing that we don't know like I think that you can see evidence of it in with the way some of the teams consistently are picking players from certain organizations that like, hey, we have an agreement in place, like we know the player dev coordinator with this org or that org and have like a guarantee that these guys are gonna play for us this offseason. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that like you know Fernando Tatis or Robinson Cano will shoot up if you make the the playoffs or whatever like they will be there even though tatis is a global superstar who's doing gatorade commercials like he'll lace it up and put on the estrellas (laughs) jersey to play in front of like his countrymen when it matters the most and like i think that knowing that stuff and getting a feel for that stuff is an important part of this too and it's funny that like you know david kubiak who (laughs) just kind of like signed out of indie ball or whatever is on the same field as one of the best baseball players on the planet in the middle of the off season when, you know, you're putting your Thanksgiving pie in the oven. Like, you guys can just have yeah. this on. And, yeah. again, like, I forget how much it cost last year. I think it might have been, like, 13 bucks or whatever. It, I don't, it could be expensive. 30 bucks. Like, it is awesome. And sometimes the, the stream can crash or whatever. But the picture, like Brendan mentioned, is crystal clear. And it's a hell of a thing to watch. Like the guys care, and you're watching great baseball. Ultimately, so you have any uh, parting shots before we um, before we close the the pod for the evening? Give me your uh, no scope right now. Who gets the second NL wild card? We're sitting here on September 8th. Who do you think gets the second NL wild card?
4: I think the Padres do. I think Snell Snell's resurgence is gonna sort of. I guess key. who knows it's like 3 weeks of baseball but um I, with Snell back in the rotation and Paddock back in the rotation I feel a lot better about that team I think their the lack of depth was their biggest problem and that's been addressed at least somewhat the Reds seem to have cooled off a little bit yeah. uh, Joey Votto hasn't homered in you know, four minutes. So that uh, <laughs> Kyle Farmer is not you know the best shortstop in baseball anymore. Kind of feels like the Reds had their had their run, and that the Padres are overall the better team and are at least a little bit healthier now. So I guess I'd go with them.
2: Then pick an AL West champion,
4: Houston, and your two wild cards from the AL. I think New York has it pretty solidly. I'm tempted to go with Toronto for the second one. I know Boston has a a three-game lead, but with their COVID issues and the way the Blue Jays are surging and how they're finally healthy and they've got most of their lineup back on the field, that just seems like the more dangerous team right now. And I actually haven't looked at the schedule. I don't know how many games that they have against the Red Sox going forward, but they'll have a tough stretch with so many games against other teams in the AL East, but It's a good team. It's a good team that's playing well. And screw it. It'd be more exciting that way. So Blue Jays.
2: I agree with you. I think that the Blue Jays, they're surging in a way that feels relevant. I don't think that Boston is ultimately like all that talented which i know is kind of to say and they've performed really well uh like certainly above my expectations all year and i should you know a culpa at this point on that but i'm not ready to do
4: that yeah that bullpen's bad i think
2: the mariners too like the mariners are are playing well and toro's hitting and like i don't know i think the mariners are interesting too i'll throw them in in like their hat in the ring as far as like chasing the other wild card, and then yeah I I do think the Padres ultimately I want the Reds to do it I want the Reds to call up Hunter Green and see how the chips fall I do too I think that would be really exciting I don't think the Phillies are for real I just don't think that their pitching can sustain itself I know that their schedule the rest of the way is the easiest of the teams chasing that second NL wild card spot but
4: I just don't think they have the horses I want it for Bryce
2: Uh, I want it for Freddie Galvis
4: (laughs) (laughs) okay so Freddie Galvis that guy must hit like 180, 240, 235 when I'm not watching because I swear I've seen 45 of his career home runs.
2: Yeah. It's he, insane. What a weird career he's had where it's just like, look, I'm going to have a 290 OBP, but hit for sneaky power and play fantastic shortstop defense. And just, you yeah. know, he's the platonic ideal of a 45 where if you know a guy's going to have a career like he's had you just 45 of them and that's what he's been for Philly and that's what he's been all year again like I I he's a 1.5 war player like almost like clockwork and and he's doing it again and he's a needed defensive upgrade for that team late In games where it's like Alec Boehm is a disaster and he's in AAA and he's been shut down because he got hit by a pitch on the hand. But like Hoskins can't play defense. Brad Miller can barely play defense. Gene Segura is old. D.D. Gregorius is old. Like they need someone like Freddie in the late innings to, to go pick it. And Zach Wheeler gets a lot of ground balls. So he should be starting when Zach Wheeler pitches. Um... Anyway, thanks for listening to uh, this Fangraphs Audio segment. Brennan, thank you for joining me. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. Until next time, folks, I've been the prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. Have a good rest of your episode.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Jim Rosenhaus for joining us. Make sure to head on over to that Fangraphs.com shop. And don't forget to sign up for our new and improved newsletter. It's a fantastic resource for keeping up with all the cool things we are doing. Thank you for listening and for supporting us. We'll see you next week.